in middle school, we had a quote-unquote sex talk, but really the girls and the boys were separated. And they would tell the girls, your body is like an apple, and every time you do something with a boy, he's taking a bite out of you. Welcome to Trauma to Triumph, where our goal is to empower, inspire, and give you the means to stand up, take control of your life, while embracing your inner badass. I am thrilled you are here and wanting to be a part of this journey. In our 12th episode, I'm beyond thrilled to introduce to you my seriously badass friend, Allison Force. Allison competed on the UW boxing team, is a national Golden Gloves winner, was an anti-human trafficking research assistant for UW, and is now an outreach advocate for Scarlet Road. She is responsible for facilitating awareness trainings within local schools and community partners while finding female face-to-face interactions with those currently in exploitation environments, building sincere and safe relationships, helping to provide empowerment toward long-term health and safety. She serves female-identified individuals who need help and support exiting the legal and or illegal sex industry helping to provide outreach to at-risk individuals and schools and provides aftercare services for those ready and able to leave the sex industry. They aim to meet the basic and long-term needs of the most vulnerable people in the greater Kitsap community to equip them with the skills to gain independence and be their own fucking heroes. Someone drop the mic. In this episode, we are going to unpack sexual assault, rape, and the good girl problem. Let's get started. So I'm really excited today to have Allison on the line. She is a freaking badass boxing queen. I'm going to call her a boxing queen because I met her at Seattle Boxing Gym and I was training with her boyfriend and I started to, well, actually, like if I was going to be really honest, I kind of cyber stalked both her and her boyfriend before I came <laughs> into Seattle Boxing Gym because I wanted to make sure that whoever I was working with was fucking legit. And she is legit. So I watched both of their videos before I ever set foot into that gym. And I was like, okay, that's who I want to train with. <laughs> I had no idea. (laughs) So my little like dirty secret, James knows, because I told him, I was like, I watched your videos before I came in because I needed to know that who I was going to work with was legit. So yeah. (laughs) The moral of the story is like, be careful what you put on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Right. So anyways, before we even go into some of the great work that you are doing and um, that you are consistently doing. I would love to have you share with our audience something crazy that nobody knows about you. Hmm. Or maybe not the general public that knows. Um, I have a couple. Those are, that's a good question. I was deported when I was 14 years old. Uh, <laughs> so proud deportee. <laughs> if anybody can't see this because nobody's going to be able to see this video, but she's white. So, Incredibly. <laughs> so the fact that she got deported, like my face is like, what? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, when I got deported, they had to explain to me what deportation meant because they handed me the slip. They're like, I, I was living in the UK when I was 14 for a year and I'd been flying over there after Christmas break, flew back to go to school and then had never figured out my visa situation, had kept kind of getting by barely. And then they're like, okay, well, we can't let you in this time you're getting deported. I said, all right, cool. Can I like go now? (laughs) And they said, no, like you have to, you have to go back to the U S where you're from. So yeah. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. So you were in the UK and you got deported Mm -hmm. to the U S. Yes. And then I eventually got a race for my record because I've, I traveled a lot starting like when I was really young, but then I was traveling a lot solo and I would be like this 15, 16 year old, you know, living in India and every time I'd go through customs, they'd be like, why do you, why do you have this on your record? Like, what is this deportation thing? So I think it's a race now. No one really knows that. Oh, that's crazy. So why were you traveling so much as a kid? Um, I, so it's a combination of things. I have a side of my family that's very international. They had taken their kids out to travel when they were freshmen. And my dad passed away when I was young. Um, and so my stepdad, when he married my mom, they were talking about, you know, when you're a freshman in high school, we can all go as a family. We should go together. Uh, and I remembered that. And then I asked him when I was older, I asked him when I was 13, I was like, Hey guys, are we still going to travel when I'm a freshman? They said, Oh, we can't do that anymore. And I said, well, 
can I go? <laughs> like, can I go by myself? <laughs> my mom said, absolutely not. And then I applied to the schools regardless, came back with like the acceptance letters and said, hey, mom, I got in. Can we like check this out? And she said, well, if you're mature enough to figure it all out on how to do it yourself, maybe you're mature enough to go by yourself. Wow. Yeah. She is an incredible person that placed way too much trust in me when I was way too young. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy though. I mean, seriously though, at like 13, 14 years old, like you're applying to the school so that you can go study and travel abroad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was a combination of like my mom what set these really cool boundaries of my family where I have this incredible relationship with my stepdad, but she was really kind of the end of the day, the decision maker. So I was able to focus all of my negotiating efforts <laughs> on just her, on convincing her. <laughs> That's so awesome. Mm-hmm. That's so awesome. So how long were you traveling around for at that age? Were you traveling up until you were like 18 or were you like, was it just like a couple of years? Like, what did that look like? Yeah. So as a 14 year old, I live, I I spent my freshman year of high school abroad in the UK, came back home, went to a school in Tacoma because I'd had so many credits for my freshman year. I was able to graduate early from high school. Um, So then I moved to England for a couple of months. Then I moved to India for a couple of months, came back, walked at high school, um, my high school graduation. Then I moved to Argentina. Wow. Yeah. So I was abroad a lot. And then since then I've been in Spent some time in Tokyo a couple of times, spent some time in Peru, a couple of months in the Amazon, stuff like that. Wow. <laughs> Your worldview has to be so different. <laughs> it's, a, so different. it's a quirky one, that's for sure. <laughs> so it's interesting to me, though, because at like the age of 13, 14, like how did you even know that you wanted to travel abroad? I've always had this thing. I, again, I fault my mother for this. Um, she never said like, I hope you have a good day or I hope you have a really great time or you're really happy. She just always wanted me to have an interesting life. Um, So I just really wanted to be the most interesting person in any room I ever went to. So Mm -hmm. in my mind, that was like, I want to go, I want to start traveling now. And I think because I was so young, I didn't, I didn't fully understand the like risk and the consequences of like homesickness or what could happen to me abroad by myself. Or I didn't have the like consequences. I just had this like really deep desire to go off and start exploring. And what did you find when you started exploring? That I enjoyed. I enjoyed being on my own. I think I've always been really independent. Um, The hard parts were definitely loneliness and homesickness at the beginning. But I was also, I think also being an only child, or I have three stepsisters and they're awesome, but they're all much older. So I think I already was kind of used to taking, being by myself a lot. So the homesickness didn't hit me as hard as as I think I expected it to, or maybe a, a normal person would expect it to. You've like yeah. had like an, an innate sense of no fear <laughs> at a really young age. Cause most people like, I can't even get my daughter to walk across the street without freaking out, <laughs> like, let alone like travel on her own into another country or even think about like applying <laughs> to schools. So it's, it's incredible because would you say that your like mom has taught you the sense of independence or is that something that you just, kind of had on your own, like as a kid or? I think I've, I've always had it since I was a kid. She's told me stories about how my birth dad, he, he like recognized these aspects of my personality and he encouraged my mom, the both of them as parents to like embrace it. So I think I've had it since I was a kid, but she's just allowed it to grow kind of to the point where it might have, I mean, subjective on how you think about allowing a 14 year old to do this by herself. But, but I think it was also the whole like, so her desire for me to have an interesting life meant that any any hardship just made my story more interesting. So even when I was getting deported, yeah, it sucked as I was sitting there and getting like interrogated and having all these things happen. Like I was didn't even know what was going on, but it was also really interesting. So I was like, oh, this is cool. Like this is so interesting. <laughs> You're like, I can't wait to tell this story. For real. And now I'm 10 years later telling it to everyone else. <laughs> right. <laughs> As you've progressed through, so you went and you traveled and then you ended up coming back and you went to UW, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Um, did you still continue to travel as you went to UW or did you stay pretty stationary at that point? Uh, it was a quirky kind of transition. I would say I'm the most stable now I've ever been, but I think it's because I'm doing something I care about. There was a time where I was in a relationship with somebody that was in a band So I would like go to school for like a month and then I would go off and join them on tour and then I would come back and then I'd go off and go back on tour. So there was a year or two where I was like traveling a bunch through like the music scene. So I was like going to Japan with them. I was going to um, 
a bunch of different states all over the U.S. with him in like their in their van, which was really interesting. It was super <laughs> I mean, again interesting, and it was fun for the time being. But I also kind of eventually recognized that I didn't want to live vicariously through somebody else's success, and I wanted to find my own path. Because your mom just like what the. F- <laughs> I, I like I still remember the call like when I called her and I told her hey mom I'm getting deported just like the silence on the other end of the phone <laughs> I've done that to her so many times she's the strongest person I know <laughs> she's like my sparring is nothing compared to what my daughter puts me through <laughs> so the work that you do now is very interesting to me can you give us a little idea of what it is that you do yes so I work at an organization, a nonprofit here in the Pacific Northwest. We work out of Kitsap County, which is a smaller county. Uh, we don't have like a big city like Tacoma or Seattle. We have a smaller couple of cities like Bremerton and stuff. Um, we serve that county. We work with survivors of sexual exploitation. And sexual exploitation, a rough definition, is just the trade of sex for resources. So it could be anything from... Like girls at a strip club, like getting paid money to dance provocatively. But then at the same time, it could be like a husband who's forcing his wife to have sex with a whole bunch of other men. Um, or a mom who's forcing, I mean, yesterday there's a mom forcing her daughter to have sex with a mom to get rent money and stuff like that. So we kind of intersect with people at all different paths and all different how, backgrounds. How do they find you or how do you find them? Referrals. So what's crazy is this year we've grown a ton, like in staff and in referrals. Um, so we're getting a new referral like once every two or three days now, consistently this whole year. Um, I think we've had like probably over 10 the last week. Um, and for a small county, I mean, I understand maybe if it was Seattle, that wouldn't seem like a big deal, but we're like a small county, um, pretty small town, Washington. And uh, it'll be like a doctor. I was working with law enforcement yesterday. It might be a friend. I had a friend text me concerned about another friend. Uh, that's what I was dealing with this morning. And then I'm also in high schools and in middle schools teaching about this. So a lot of our referrals come from our trainings and us being out in the community. I don't know if like the idea that your staff has expanded is like great because it just means <laughs> that there's more issues, but it's great to know that there are people um, that you guys are able to support the people that you guys are bringing on. It just really is hard to hear that. Like, I mean, Kitsap County, like that's so small. <laughs> Yeah. You know, also, I think, I mean, a good perspective to have on it is like the issues there and people are experiencing this regardless, like regardless of whether we're there or not, this, this crime is going on. Um, And this issue exists in all of our counties and all of the U.S. But it's nice to know that we're starting to get a little bit more recognition for the work we're doing so that more people are aware of the options they have if they want to get out. Right. So with your organization, are you guys doing, so I used to belong to a board that served um, children of sexual assault, trauma, and abuse. Mm -hmm. And we would take them through legal advocacy as well as um, mental behavioral therapy type stuff, cognitive behavioral therapy, just so that they could get preface for court and everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you guys do something similar to that? Or like, what does your system look like? Yeah. So we have like, we have like two branches. I'm in outreach, which means that I'm doing the trainings. I'm out like helping with community relationships. Um, And then I'm also the one that when we get a new referral of a person that's being exploited, I'm the one that like tries to make that connection. And sometimes when I connect with them, if I'm able to, uh, they want help and sometimes they don't and that's fine. So then they would stay in outreach um, and we'll just continue. I mean, we're relational, we're relationship-based. So I'll just develop a friendship, I'll develop rapport, let them know that I'm a safe person, non-judgmental. We don't require that they leave the life. If they're being exploited, we don't have any like high standards to participate in our program. They just have to be able to meet with us once a week. Um, And if they want the help, if they want um, any support, then our other branch is called aftercare. And that's like really intensive case management. So case management helps with um, like resource based, like stable housing and getting mental health support and helping develop community and um, other like financial stability and stuff like that. They have a case manager that will work with them over months, if not years um, to help them reach their goals. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. That's got to take some serious funding or some like, 
yeah, fundraising, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm really grateful because that's not my, that's not my forte. And I'm grateful that there's people in our organization that it is their forte and that they can run with what they're, they're the best at. Right. So it's interesting for me because I know that when I initially joined the, um, the center that I did, the nonprofit organization to do the work that is somewhat similar to what you're doing on a different level, mm-hmm. but still somewhat similar. And it was amazing to me how many people actually reached out and were like, wow, you know, I know that there's something that inspires you to do this. And it's usually because something personal has happened. Mm-hmm. Like most people don't volunteer and be like, yeah, I want to go work for an organization that, you know, works with kids that have been sexually assaulted and, you know, abused. Like that doesn't sound like fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not fun, right? Like at the end of the day, it's like you can relate to it because you can understand it on a completely different level. Like I just don't know too many people that are in that space that haven't either been personally impacted by it or seen somebody who has been impacted by it. Oh, yeah. Oh, completely. I mean, somebody, I was at a training. Another thing I love about our organization is that my training period was very intensive. There was like three or four months where I was just going through like domestic violence training, all these trainings, et cetera, um, to be able to work with, with clients, be able to work with survivors. And somebody in one of the trainings told us like, if you're an advocate for in victim services, like you're fucked up to some degree and excuse my language, but like something happened to you to make you want to do this. Like no, no normal person would just like stroll on it and be like, I want to meet people with like where they're at, like the most crisis and trauma and difficult point in their life and work with them from there. Right. Yeah. You have to be fucked up to some degree to want to do this type of job. (laughs) Right. And you also have to have the endurance and the wherewithal to be able to do it too, because it's super heavy. So with that being said, what brought you into this space? I, so from a professional standpoint, I went to UW for human rights, graduated, got a job working in anti-human trafficking um, from like a task force that I was in, was doing research and then really wanted to do like victim services or work directly with survivors. Um, But part of the reason personally why I think I love this job is, I mean, the training aspect. uh, I was, you know, I've, I'm a, survivor of sexual assault. I'm a survivor of rape. I have not been personally like sexually exploited. Um, although we are a survivor led organization, which is also really cool, but definitely like wanting to work with people that have been traumatized sexually to some degree, uh, motivated my, my desire to work with them and also to like improve the educational resources out there in the community. Because I felt like that was really what hurt me the most was not having access to access to those resources. So with sexual trauma for you, I'm assuming just sexual trauma and not just sexual trauma. Right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> like everybody deals with it, right? Like it's not I've been raped. Deal. You've been raped. You've all been raped. We're fine. Right. And I think that's like the, the biggest challenge is that like, and it's so crazy because I remember I was talking to this one lady and she was in the UK and I was telling her about the work that I wanted to do. And she was like, and this is how bad like society has gotten in this in this arena mm-hmm. she said everybody has a story like that I'm like okay uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like everybody should not have this story <laughs> right like this is not something that I ever want anyone to have to I don't mm-hmm. care if you're my worst freaking enemy I don't really have enemies but this is not a story that I'd want anybody to be able to have it and like and then placate it on top of that Mm-hmm. Right. Just like, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. But the power of it is like, is like having people out there that have experienced this and that are comfortable sharing their story creates spaces for those with similar stories to feel comfortable coming forward. Right. Like, that's the beautiful and the hard part. Like, even like in the high schools that I've been in, like, I'll be teaching a class and then I'll be connecting with a teacher after and she'll be like, yeah, that happened to me. And it's, it's not just like a one-time thing. It's like your story that you shared about your sexual assault, that happened to me when I was young, that happened to me when I was in college, stuff like that. And it's like consistently creating space, not only for youth, but also for the older generations to be able to come forward and feel comfortable sharing their story about their sexual trauma. The hardest part is that as youth, the biggest challenge there is naming it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, is this normal? Like, this is normal, like not knowing that it's not normal. Um, but then as you get to an adult, because it's been normalized, right? 
and trying to understand why there's a difference in separation. And it's kind of interesting. I always say this thing where there's healthy versus unhealthy and people who've never had these experiences, they're like, why the hell would you do that? And why would you allow that to happen? Um, Whereas they don't really understand that the difference is that this is their normal and a healthy person who's never had to experience that is like looking at you like, are you dumb? Or like, do you not know how to say no? Like what's going on there? But then if you've never had to experience it, you don't know the questions and the self-doubt and the conversations that you're having in your own head and how that plays out as an adult. And then having to learn how to rewire this boundaries conversation, right? Totally. I mean, and like, and kids ask me that too, because they'll be like, I mean, depending on what school, some of the schools I'm teaching at are more conservative. Some of them are more liberal. So some of the kids, there's different degrees of exposure to boundaries and consent talks. And they'll be like, well, that like people don't actually like believe that. Right. And I'm like, well, for me personally, like I didn't, I never received sex ed period. I had, I had to teach myself when I was like 19 or 20 about the different types of birth control. And I like had to do online research. I had to ask, like I had some incredible friends and people that came into my life that helped me learn it. But like at that point, I'd already been raped. I'd already been sexually assaulted. And I hadn't learned, I didn't have names for those things until people with education and with exposure were able to come into my life like, hey, that was wrong. That person should have done that. That's assault. That's rape. So am I allowed to talk about your experiences? Totally. Yeah. I'm so okay. comfortable. So with that, what was your first experience of being sexually assaulted? There's like, I'm sure there's more. I think there's like, three really significant ones. And so the first one, I think I was like 15 or 16. And I grew up very conservative in a pretty religious area from like K through eight in middle school. We had a quote unquote sex talk, but really the girls and the boys were separated and they would tell the girls, uh, your body is like an apple. And every time you do something with a boy, he's taking a bite out of you, leaving you to be a more rotten core for the next por- like for the next person. And then the next year, it was that we were a, a gift that was wrapped in wrapping paper. And every time you did something, even just like kissing, the person was unwrapping you and was going to unwrap, like rewrap you shittier than they did the first time. So that was the background that I had. <laughs> the look on my face right now is like of absolute disgust. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like, did you grow up Catholic? No, just just a conservative Christian. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. That was was my background. Um, And I had a very strong desire, again, um, to save virginity for my husband. Or at that time, I wanted to, like, save my virginity for for being married and stuff like that. Uh, And that was something that carried with me. And that was something I struggled with because I was also a horny preteen and horny teenager. So I was kind of, like, dealing with all of those different feelings and, like, the the cognitive, what is it, cognitive dissonance between wanting to do things and also not feeling like I should. Uh, so I was 15, 16, I had met a guy. And at this point I'd already done a couple of couple of things. Um, but I was very like, I would like mess around, but like I wouldn't like let them put it in kind of. Um, and that was my whole thing. So we were messing around one day, we were at his apartment and he kept really being pushy and wouldn't, wouldn't respect when I was saying, no, I don't want to actually have sex with you. I'm, I'm down to kind of make out with you and do these other things with you, but I don't want to have sex with you. And he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And then at some point, he, when I was telling him, when I was really freaked out, but I, I was also taught, like, you shouldn't really ever say no because it's rude. Mm-hmm. So you should just kind of, like, sneak your way out of situations. So I was trying to, like, subtly get out of the situation and he slapped me across my face and he said, shut up, I'm going to fucking rape you. Wow. And then he just stopped and I just froze and then he started laughing. And he said, oh, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. And then I like, and you know, gaslighting me. So I was like, what the, what the heck? <laughs> and so I'm still in this situation. Then he does it again. And then at, at that point, I like drew the line. I was like, yo, I'm getting out of here. Like, I don't even know you that well. Like, who, like, why are you doing this to me? And then I, I went up to try to leave and he grabbed me and he like choked me out. And I said, if you don't let me go, I'm going to scream and everyone else in this apartment building is going to hear me. So you need to let go of me right now. And then I left. And that was the first time that something really traumatizing, I think, happened to me on that degree. Did you end up telling your mom? Did you tell anybody? No. I, di- I, told, I told my best friend at the time, uh, my best friend who was a teen mom, I think she was pregnant at the time, her, her baby daddy ended up like, 
trying to get all his dudes together to track the guy down. So I had some people in my corner that were advocating for me, but I don't, I mean, I didn't tell anyone for years apart from her and for him. Did that change the trajectory of how you interacted with men afterwards? No, actually, because I didn't connect. I, I just didn't connect. I was, I'm very like, just bury it down, laugh it off, kind of move on. I was mm-hmm. freaked out of it, but you know, it didn't change that much. I was, and I was like 15 or 16, so I was pretty young. Also what I was like, it was, it was another thing that I didn't connect. I, it, it took me first recognizing that I was raped and I wasn't raped until I was like 18 or 19. I was 18 when I was raped. And that was when I was living in Argentina. And it took me a year from that point until that ex-boyfriend that I dated who sat me down. He was like, that's not okay that these things happen to you. Like, that's rape. And I was like, what are you talking about? That guy's just an asshole. He said, no, Allison, that was rape. And then back from there, I started looking at all of these other experiences and connecting the dots of, oh, that was assault. Oh, that was bad. Oh, that was traumatic. But it took somebody, like I said, the friends, and I was finally like 19 or 20, sitting me down and being like, these things weren't okay that this happened to you. How did you get to a point where you started to learn that you needed to heal? Um, <laughs> so a huge thing was first, you know, naming it. So... Mm-hmm. So, okay, so when I was, so I was 18, I was living in Argentina. Um, I went for a weekend trip to Uruguay, which is just like, it's like going from Seattle to Vancouver, Canada. It's pretty close. Um, and I was staying at a hostel. I was about to go back home for Christmas. Um, similar thing, I'd met a cute guy at a hostel. We went out to the beach. He was a lot older. I think he was like early 30s. I was 18. We'd been drinking wine. And then we went out on the beach. We started making out. Same thing at this point. I'd still kept my quote unquote virginity. I'd never actually been had intercourse, full-on intercourse, however you want to define it, um, because I was still saving it for somebody that I had wanted to be in a relationship with. Um, But we were still messing around. And the same thing, because at this point, I had learned to be much more firm. Like, hey, you might expect that you can convince me to having sex with you, but I'm going to draw the line right here, and it's going to consistently be there. There's nothing you can do to talk me over that. I'm willing to go this far with you, but if you're actually going to try to like have sex with me, I'm not interested in that. So I'd said that before we even started messing around, but same thing, we're messing around. He wasn't listening to me when I was saying no to back off. And then he actually did penetrate me a couple of times and I tried to kick him off. And then I started to get really scared of him. And so then we continued, but I was like at this point completely shut down, really frozen. And we left and he left, he kind of left me at the beach and I was in tears and I walked back to the hostel and unfortunately, we, had a, we were the only two people staying in the hostel room. So I was just in a lot of fear, really scared at what happened, and really tried to deny it. Like, that didn't actually happen. The thing is, because with the Christianity part, it's like, I'm still a virgin, right? I'm still a virgin. He didn't actually do that. I'm still a virgin. I'm not, I'm not useless now, right? I'm not like a rotten core now, right? And then I didn't tell anyone about that. I didn't tell anyone. Except three months later, he found me on Facebook And out of nowhere, I was already back in Seattle at this point going to college. He found me on Facebook and out of nowhere said, hey, remember we're on the beach and I said I didn't put it in? I actually did. Ha 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 ha. And then at that point was when everything hit. And that was when I shut down. And from the point when I was raped and for the next nine months, I'd been almost overweight or obese my whole life. I'd been up pushing 200, 210 pounds. And then from the time when I got raped and I got home, like January, to the following September, November, I lost like 60 pounds. And I just put all of my attention, completely stopped talking to boys, nothing romantic, and just boxed, just kickboxed like crazy. And that was the first step, I think, to dealing with the trauma. Later was naming it and later was connecting, like, I think I need to do some emotional stuff. (laughs) That's crazy. It's crazy that he had like the balls to come back and taunt you. Right? Right? What's crazy though, I don't know if I would have ever even connected it though. If he hadn't done that, I think it would have been one of those stories that's suppressed and still like buried underneath somewhere. So you kickboxed and Mm -hmm. then like, did you do any therapy? Did you do any work? Like, what did you do? Like, you like (laughs) kind of winged it and be like, hey, I'm going to do this and drop some weight and like whatever else. Like, Mm -hmm. how did you end up like coming to peace with all of it? Because I mean, clearly you're in a place where like you're, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it was gradual. I mean, kickboxing, it was kind of this unconscious desire to reclaim my body. And then I started getting really into it. And then I got into relationship. And then 
I think, I honestly think it was through, it's kind of funny. I think it was through losing my virginity, what I defined as my virginity, because this ex who helped me identify what was rape and what was assault, because I still had this thing. I was like, well, if I'm raped, then I'm not a virgin anymore. Like, I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not worthless. The last six years that I've been trying to save myself or whatever's left of me for marriage is gone. And he stopped me and he said, no, Allison, what are you talking about? He's like, if you've been saving your virginity, you can define whatever that is to you because that's more of like an emotional than a physical construct for you. And if somebody, if somebody can't take that forcefully away from you, he's, he was like, you, if you want to still, if you still identify as that, if you still want to give that away, that's yours to give. Nobody can take that away from you. Mm-hmm. So it was just really beautiful. And then that was when I actually started having a more healthy relationship with that side of me and through engaging in that, um, like on a more healthy side and having some really incredible, powerful friends who are also survivors of assault kind of helped me start working through all of it. Being able to say it out loud and to be able to share mm-hmm. and to be able to talk about it and to mm-hmm. have somebody actually hear you and not feel like you're dirty mm-hmm. talk about it. Yeah. And like, and it was years later, I finally sat my mom down and I told her, and it was funny what her reaction was. It's because she like, I remember we were in the parking lot next to Seattle boxing gym. So I'd already been boxing. I was on the UW team. Me and this ex had broken up long ago. And I sat her down. I kind of told her what had happened. And I said, I just think it's important that you know, because there's an article that's going to come out of me talking about this. And it's like, I say it's the reason why I box was to like recover from my sexual assault. And she said, oh, Allison, that all makes sense now. Like why you kickboxed. And I'd never connected that I had unconsciously like committed like crazy to fitness and like crazy like martial arts was because of the rape I hadn't she made that connection for me which was pretty funny it was like years later yeah yeah it's amazing and beautiful that your mom was able to connect that and the way that she was able to receive it was so wholesome Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. she's a she's a gentle person and she's like yeah she like she's the type of person like when I was in third grade instead of asking like oh honey how's your day like how's your day she would be like Allison, so like, like, what do you want to do with your life? Or what does love mean to you? <laughs> so she was like asking me these really big questions from when I was really young. So she's always, we have a, a good connection and communication on that level. <laughs> kind of ridiculous. That's awesome. Um, so you've had quite the journey to get to where you are. Like one of the things that I love is watching you and James and... The dynamic there, just the playfulness and the peacefulness. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of women that are in martial arts kind of have somewhat, I don't want to say similar story because everybody's stories are so different and so unique to them. But it's like that feeling of having to overcome some shit mm-hmm. and that journey of like some kind of, you know, assault or some kind of trauma that makes them go into this journey of martial arts. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you ended up doing kickboxing and then you ended up doing boxing and like finding the reasons for why you fight and being able to control your body is obviously something that I completely resonate with. Two, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're similar stories, although very different, a lot of similar outcomes. <laughs> so when you ended up going in and like realizing that this is the kind of work that you wanted to do, what would you say, like, where was that aha moment for you? I think it was, it was when I was interviewing and I was asking for this job in particular. I mean, there's been like baby steps so far, but I would definitely say this is the first position that I've been in where I'm like, jumping in, balls in, like totally, totally in. Um, And I would say it's because being able to connect one-on-one with people because I love people and I love being in relationship with people. And because my mom taught me to embrace like tragedy through my dad dying, through crisis and through difficult times and just being able to meet people there, she taught me that. And I feel like that was a strength that I had to give. Um, But then also being able to go to the schools and being able to share the information that I wished I had already, I'd had when I was their age. Like, it's just like it, it, when I was teaching the schools, it just like connected to me one day and I was like, oh my God, like I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do or like what I wish I could have had when I was their age. So it's very fulfilling in that sense. Absolutely. That's awesome. What is something that you would love 
for people to do more of with regards to everything that you've taken away, everything that you've seen. And now that you're actually doing the work, what is something that you feel would really change the trajectory of how people are able to either prevent trauma or just be in a better place? Yeah. I mean, like being able to, I I think having the courage to ask hard questions and having the courage to meet people when they're in a difficult place and not just like feeling that immediate desire to like comfort or like find an answer to make it okay. Like just being able to like sit with somebody in that, I think allows for people to work through it, not on their own, because I feel like there's a lot of trauma that you have to have you have to have relationship to be able to like build from your darkness. So being able to have people around you that are willing to just sit with you in that and not feeling the need to fix you is huge. Right. And also having, I mean, having friends, but also having encouraging parents and encouraging adults that are in the lives of youth to have the conversations about what is healthy boundaries, what are healthy relationships, what are, um, what are values and not just imposing like these rules or these restrictions, but being able to work with the kid because I mean, 13 year old, if I was, I mean, I was able to live on my own at 14 years old, living on my own at school and travel abroad. I was able to do that at 14 years old, but for some reason people felt like they couldn't talk to me and sit me down and tell me what boundaries are and what options I had and how to, uh, and trust that I had the responsibility and the wisdom at that point to like make a decision for myself of whether or not I wanted to have sex or whether or not I wanted to save it for marriage. But like, if I had just had more information, I think, uh, I think I would have avoided, unfortunately, I'm not trying to blame it on anyone else, but I think I would have been able to get myself out of some of those really terrible situations if I had known I could have said no. So are you speaking from like a school standpoint or a parenting standpoint? And I know that this isn't blaming any of the above, but like, where do you think systemically we are getting it wrong and what can we do to make that difference? I think, um, I think schools are on the pathway to accepting these types of talks. Um, I think like coming from Seattle, like part of the reason why I like my job is, I mean, Seattle, I lived in Capitol Hill. It's like one of the most liberal parts of the country, like literally one of the most liberal neighborhoods in the whole country. (laughs) (laughs) It's like rainbow sidewalks everywhere, which is awesome. Um, but then I work somewhere that's a lot more conservative. And so it's funny because I feel a lot more impassioned to do my job because I'm in a place where I know I'm going to get some resistance. And I know that there's going to be, um, I'm going to create some shockwaves with some of the stuff I'm teaching about. But I think being able to give, like to offer this and not being afraid of um, offering this information, allowing parents to be able to opt out. They don't want their kids to learn. But like, I think a lot of schools are afraid of offending right now. Right. I'm saying donors off. Which is so funny that you say that because like last year, right, my daughter is like in sixth grade now. So, so mm-hmm. it was last year, fifth grade. And it's like at the end of the elementary journey, right? Yeah. And so I remember her teacher reaching out and I think we got like five warning shots, right? Five warning shots to have conversations about sex education. Like not even like anything crazy, but like where your vagina is and where, like, what it is and, like, mm-hmm. the hormones and whatever else. And I'm like, did I really get, like, five emails on this? Like, <laughs> literally anatomy. <laughs> right. And I'm like, we're not even having, like, the tough conversations. It's just literally, like, human anatomy and the way that puberty looks like. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, the PC behind it and the opt out like if you like are you having as parents are we having these conversations with our kids Mm -hmm. are we having them enough and are we being really transparent Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like something I feel like we probably have a little bit of missing like I do talk to like I have some really amazing girlfriends and they're like in my daughter's classes um their daughters are in my daughter's classes at least used to be. And the conversations, like I have this girlfriend, she's a coach and it was interesting because her daughter was being sexually harassed and the things that her daughter couldn't say because she was so scared to say these words out loud. So my girlfriend is walking because she was getting, her daughter was getting sexually harassed by another boy. 
right? And it was like really bad. But she literally walked around the table and she was screaming out, and this is going to sound super vulgar, but like the C word, like, you know, like all this stuff, because she was like, I want you to know it. I want you to hear it. I want you to make sure that you don't cringe. Like these aren't words that we use, but we're going to use these words until you get comfortable with all the different names that we have for Mm -hmm. these things. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we're going to backtrack into the conversations because like we teach our kids to be so politically correct and that's great. But it's like when we are being harassed or when we're like learning how to name things, if we can't say those words out loud, the conversation about boundaries is like freaking out the window. Completely. Yeah. I mean, like I remember a lot of the people that spoke into my life at like that moment, like that when I first started kind of this journey towards healing, um, all of them credited both being able to talk about it with their parents and being able to have that line for questions or feeling comfortable asking at least an adult for questions um, about sex and about their bodies and boundaries and relationships and stuff. Then also they said that they'd had great health education and they said that they had great sex ed. Um, And that was how they were able to talk to me about all these different things about consent, boundaries, and what is or is not assault. Um, Because again, I didn't have that and I don't fault my parents for it, but I was also, I was just given a book and never really asked any questions. I never asked questions. I think, I I think my mom totally tried, which is awesome. Um, but it wasn't, I never felt like I had folks in my life that I could speak to about it other than my fellow friends that were also incredibly miseducated and misinformed about boundaries, (laughs) which did not make it any better. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely interesting because for me, like in this last Last couple of months has been really interesting in the sense that my son was inappropriately touched by another classmate. And then um, my son was choked out on the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I'm getting into these conversations, both with my son and my daughter and like teaching them how to name it, like, and you know, like the hardest part about going through that process is watching your kid go through it, right? Like I do this work so that my kids don't have to. And when I do this work and my kids go through it, I'm like, holy shit, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) And like, it takes all of me not to rage and not to like have a complete meltdown. But then I'm like, how do we get this right? And it's interesting because, and not to say that I ever want it to happen to anybody, but to open up that dialogue and to see what parents are doing and what they're not doing is so huge, mm-hmm. right? Like the conversations that we're missing and it's like, like on my Facebook pages, I'll be like public service announcement. It's time to have that conversation with your kids, right? Yeah. Because we just don't, like we don't go through and reinforce these boundaries. Like we can create this great space for them, but we're not giving them practical skill sets Mm -hmm. in order to be able to go out and really deal with the real world happenings. Mm -hmm. Well, and even like, I know, I know what some people that may, might not be comfortable about talking about like the actual sexual aspect until a lot, a lot later on. A lot of people, like I talk about this with my coworkers, it starts early on of just learning that to respect no Mm -hmm. and to ask because like I know that I was talking with some some parents that have kids and they were saying like how can I teach my kid like what consent is if I if he asked me to stop tickling him and I I keep tickling him like it starts on like a really small level right learning to respect the respect somebody else's boundaries and how to communicate about that and also on the flip side if you're the one that's saying no or establishing the boundaries also teaching your kids, um, one, that it's okay to say no, and two, not to apologize for it. Because that was something that I totally had. And I think a lot of girls are taught to be polite, to be docile, to be, to kind of like soften the blow. But that's definitely something that boxing taught me, which I freaking love about this sport, is like, now if I'm at a club and somebody puts their hand on my shoulder, or somebody puts their hand anywhere on my body, and I didn't expressly give them permission to, I'm, I'm, cutting that shit out right there. Like (laughs) you will not lay a finger on my body without my permission. And I was not that way. I was not that way in college. Mm -hmm. Like people would dance on me at clubs and I would like apologize. And I'd be like, Oh, I'm sorry. Like, I don't really want to talk to you. Like, but I would apologize and I would feel the need. Like I had to soften this, this no, this boundary of mine, but it's, it's teaching. If if I could, if I could have figured that out way earlier, I'm definitely planning on talking about that with my kids is like, don't freaking, don't fucking apologize if you don't feel comfortable with somebody touching you. Right. 
it's funny because I did write an article about that. I'm like, just because we we know martial arts and just because we can kick somebody's ass, there's a different conversation that has to go in place. And that's really about like, did you say no when they put their hand on your shoulder? Because that felt uncomfortable. Like, because that's where that starts. Mm-hmm. And like sexual harassment, sexual assault, you know, any type of trauma in that arena starts before you actually get that close. Totally. And a lot of people don't realize it's like, it's a simple act of saying, please get your hand off my shoulder. Like that doesn't make me feel comfortable because the hand on the shoulder goes to the middle of your back, then it goes to your low back. And then you're like, what the fuck is this shit? Yeah. Like, oh my God. Right. And and a lot of it is like, and I don't blame, like, I'm not saying that I'm not meaning to come off. Like I'm blaming myself for my own sexual assaults, but I know that there were so many points leading up to the actual act of sexual violence where I felt like I couldn't say no, or I felt like I couldn't, I had to be polite. Like I had people teach me, like James and I were talking about this last night and I was taught by friends who were also miseducated, misinformed, but with good intentions, um, you know, if somebody does something to you, you have to do something back for, to them. Like if somebody gives you head, then you have to do it back to them. And it's not so much like encouraging reciprocity and encouraging both people are like fu- fulfilled physically. It's instead, it's like, no, there's this law. Like if a guy does something for you, you are like obligated by law to like do something back to him. And that was this idea that I had. Yeah. I totally had it. Like, and and there were so many points, like there were so many points that if I, if I had felt like I didn't need to apologize or soften or be like uh, more kind, like, or being afraid of being called a bitch or being afraid of being called the C word for just like being comfortable being like, no, don't touch me there. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's crazy because I completely agree with you. One of the things for me, and it's a, a learning, it's always a learning process, right? But even with the sport, the biggest thing that my coach said to me is like, Kim, you control the pace. And I'm like, huh. And that didn't really like resonate with me. And so he's like, no, you go in there, you control the pace, you play your game. And I'm like, I don't really like, I I get it, but it's like, there's still, and I think it's natural, especially for female martial artists, like when you're getting into it, like learning that you can be aggressive and you can, you know, push, um, and it takes so much to just get you to like hit somebody and actually like hit them square in the jaw or whatever else. And it, it's kind of an interesting progression of like going from, I'm just going to slightly tap them to mm-hmm. like, I'm going to actually hit them. Oh my gosh. I freaking love that point. When I'm like working with new female boxers, like that's definitely something I see way more often with girls and with guys like in boxing. Cause I'm with the UW boxing team. I see, I see new boxers a lot. And like, I used to train people at UFC. I was a boxing instructor and I would be training new female boxers and they would like hit me super lightly and then they would apologize immediately. And I was like, girl, like we're boxing. You're supposed to do that. I also am letting you hit me. Like, don't worry about it. You're not going to hurt me. And then they'd like tap me a little harder and I wouldn't hit back or I wouldn't like do any work with them until I felt like they were comfortable, like throwing an actual full punch. Right. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> but it's it's so funny though because like I like just the, the progression of like martial arts, right? Like understanding that you can throw and that you can hit and you don't need to apologize for hitting. Um, but when you go into the space of like, you know, again, assault, sexual assault, trauma, abuse, um, it's like you feel like you have to apologize for your perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And it like makes no sense other than the fact that we're supposed to be meek and demure and like polite. And that's why a lot of times we don't speak up. And then like the fear of retaliation on top of that is like a whole nother like topic conversation. Um, but yeah, so going with that, it's, it's interesting to see, just to see how women react to sexual assault and how we hold on to it for so long for an unnecessarily long amount of time because we don't know how to name it and we don't know how to say it without feeling embarrassed and ashamed. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. So it reminds me, so there's, I said, like I had these like three, three significant traumas or three significant assaults or something. And the, the one that I use in my trainings, um, I don't always include the full story of it 
because I, I tell a story about how when I was 17, I was in high school, went to a high school party, fell asleep on the couch, like the party animal I am, just knocked out on the couch pretty early and then woke up to somebody sexually assaulting me, woke up to somebody crawling in to the couch next to me and trying to lay his hands on me. And I use that because it, it turns out that actually he had just walked out of that room from having sex with a friend of mine and then crawled into the couch next to me. Ugh. I didn't know that because I was like dead asleep. Um, what I don't talk about and what's the really harsh reality of it uh, is that when I woke up to him, obviously I was terrified. Obviously I froze. Obviously I had one of that fight, flight, freeze, appease kind of response. Um, but I didn't immediately, like I freaked out and I was, yo, I was kind of like, yo, what the hell are you doing? What do you think you're doing? But I was so scared that I, like, I, I froze in that moment. And that's like that really uncomfortable reality of it is when you are so terrified of what's going to happen to you and you don't understand what's going on and you don't know that that is totally sexual assault. I didn't connect that that was sexual assault. I just thought this guy was an asshole. Yeah. So I like kind of went along with it. I like, I, I played into his game for a little bit because I was so freaked out at that moment. I didn't know that I could probably like, you know, start screaming, start yelling and that that was assault. I, I kind of let him go along with it until I was able to find a, a moment to escape. And that's so that's something I also include in my trainings that I love talking about is we have these responses that are ingrained into our into our body. Like they're programmed into our body. And you can't blame yourself for that. Like yeah. if you freeze, it's not your like it's not your fault. You were terrified. That that it was a violation of your boundary in the first place. Your response to that trauma, your response to that stress isn't something that you can hold against yourself. And you it's important to like part of the recovery is like learning how to forgive yourself. Right. Come to peace with that shit. And embrace it. Yeah. It's so great that you brought that up because most people don't realize like, and I say this about men really. <laughs> okay. So men are like, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you hit him back? Why did like, you're at this point where you're like underneath and you're like, what the fuck is happening? Mm-hmm. And I can't believe this is happening. And like, you like literally lose your voice. Like you mm-hmm. like feel like you're being stifled, even if your like mouth isn't covered or whatever else. Totally. And I was talking to one of my buddies the other day and I have a girlfriend who was like getting out of a bad situation. He was like, well, why didn't she just leave? And I'm like, <laughs> so I'm like guys are so fucking simple sometimes no it's like all the ones that actually get this but like I'm like do you not know like Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to like explain it to him and I'm like breaking it down and I'm like dude like her confidence has like been dwindled down to nothing and like her ability to speak up for herself like she doesn't even feel like she has the right to defend herself let alone walk out of a relationship that you know she's been beaten down in but, you know, with sexual assault, it, it's the same thing. It's like the ability to actually feel like it's okay to say no. Uh, I freaking love talking about this because we're at this very interesting moment in 2018 where we are seeing people talk talk about sexual assault, where you're seeing the Me Too movement, you're seeing all these women come forward as survivors, you're seeing all these stories. Um, but now we're at this point where it's kind of like the what now? Yeah. Um, and there is that uncomfortable truth. And this is something that was present in every single one of my sexual assaults. There's freeze, uh, fight, freeze. Uh, what's the other one? Fight, freeze, flight. Oh yeah. So running away, fighting back or just freezing. But something that I teach about is there's also this last one that's appease. And it's where you recognize in that moment where it's so dangerous for you. If you fight back, the consequences could be worse. If you run away, you feel like you can't. And you can't just freeze anymore because you're in danger or you're already kind of frozen. You appease because that's your response to the danger. And that's what I think is really important to talk about when we're talking about consent and we're getting men involved in this conversation because the appease aspect makes it makes consent difficult. It, it complicates the issue a little bit. Right. And we can't just name and shame like, you know, I was absolutely sexually assaulted, but I know that there's probably guys out there who thought that they were having consensual sex, but they didn't realize that the girl was terrified. Yeah. And that's this really awkward truth that we need to start recognizing and talking about and teaching our boys to also learn to have these conversations about boundaries and conversations about consent and what is yes, what is no, because um, the appease issue is real. And one person's stress response could be uh, misinterpreted by, by the other person that they're with. Right. 
The appease is so interesting to me because, and especially in the Asian culture, right? Like we're taught to appease everybody. Like Mm -hmm. that's how we survive. And it's interesting because as I was talking to my therapist in one of my first podcasts is um, the feeling, the need to be a good girl. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Right. I feel that. (laughs) Like there's a whole nother conversation and that word alone. But the biggest challenge is, is that like, we're, we're always like the way that women are brought up in this world is because we're supposed to be good and wholesome and like, you know, yeah. And do all these great things. And the idea that we are no longer a good girl, but that's how we've been reinforced for so long. And to not be a good girl, like for you, like, Oh, I'm, I'm no longer, you know, this perfect virgin. Like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, not a virgin anymore. I'm a rotten apple. (laughs) You're a rotten apple. Like that goes back to that whole good girl theory, right? And the ability to break free from that and to be completely like raw and authentic and vulnerable and owning your own power and your strength without having to be the good girl is such a challenge for all of us. That's huge. Well, and I mean, because I, I was it's interesting when we were talking about being on your podcast and I was talking with James about like what is healing, what is recovery, and what is being like whole? Like what is what is road to recovery and how do you know when you're healed? Um, and I think a part of that is exactly like you're saying, is like learning to be unapologetically yourself. Like learning to be unapologetic about your story and about your trauma and about the awful things that have happened to you and not blaming yourself, but embracing your story as just a part, an interesting part of your life and an interesting aspect that you grew from and that now defines the work that you do and defines like the passion and and the joy that you have um, being able to serve the populations that I personally work with. I think learning to be unapologetic was awesome. It's like, it's, it's an important thing. And it's something that I like to encourage even in my friends groups. It's just like, I think it's an awesome thing with martial artists, like with female martial martial artists, learning to not apologize for punching someone in the face. If nothing else, even if you suck as a boxer, you suck as a martial artist, knowing how to punch them in the face and not apologize for it. I think that's a huge milestone. <laughs> right? No kidding. I think like for the first like few months, my coach, like when I first started boxing in Bellevue, my coach kept saying, stop saying sorry. Stop saying mm-hmm. sorry. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> stop saying sorry. Yeah. And I'm like, all right. But you know, the greatest liberation is the when the I don't give a fuck button kicks in, you're just like... Fuck it. <laughs> it's like the it's like the freaking <laughs> basketball game. Bra, 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 bra. <laughs> right. And cool. it's like it's so funny because now I'm like, yeah, whatever. I don't really care. Like, <laughs> do whatever you want to do. But it's taking so long to just get to this point. I mean, seriously, like it's not the easiest journey, but you know when you're in a good place when the I don't give a fuck button kicks in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think, I think that that's like what we call healing, right? Like true, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. I just like, like when I'm at, if I'm out dancing with my female friends now and that, that it was like one of this thing where I like, I had to really learn, like it was okay to tell people essentially to fuck off if they were trying to dance with me. Um, mm-hmm. And then seeing all my other female friends, even though they're boxers and even though they're martial artists, like, kind of cower a little bit or get scared when a dude comes up to them and not really know how to respond. I'm like, hey girl, I got the secret. You could just just tell them to fuck off. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't care. Like just tell them to fuck off. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the things that we could get into. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel like you've gotten to the I don't give a fuck place? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think I think so again when I was talking with James and I'm glad I get to share this I was talking with James like oh my god like how am I supposed to talk about like recovery like what is being healed what is being good like what how do you how do you define that like if this is a podcast about trauma to triumph how do you define triumph because like shitty stuff happens all the time right Um, (laughs) but I was I was thinking about it with talking about it with James and I listened to a talk the other day by somebody who was sex trafficked for like 10 years up and down I-5 and Aurora. At the time he was like 13 or 14, he got out of the life and he's like early 20s. And now he's this incredible public speaker um, going around sharing his story and working with anti-human trafficking organizations. And he was sharing, somebody asked him the same question, like, so how did you, how did you heal? Like, how are you okay now? How is it that you're healed now? 
And he kind of paused and he looked at them. He's like, oh, I don't think you're ever completely healed. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think you just learn to live above your pain and you learn to share the tools that help you live above your pain with others who are still in pain. And he's saying, right. that's what empowers him. And so that's what it is. I think I've definitely gotten to the point where I've learned to live above my pain. And that pain, I think, empowers me to be able to work with others and meet others where they're at because it's a, just a, it's a unique way that I'm able to, to engage with people is like as a survivor of rape, as a survivor of sexual assault, I'm able to meet people, maybe not completely understanding where they're coming from, but being able to be like, yo, that's shitty. That really sucks that that happened to you. Um, let's work together. Like, let's move forward together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love that one of the things that you kept talking about was just being able to sit with them, allowing them to process stuff. And for me, when I hear that, it's like holding space for somebody, but not going in and saving them because the biggest challenge going back to being a victim is being a victim, right? Mm -hmm. It's like breaking out of that codependent triangle and really learning to stand on your own and be your own hero. Yes. Yeah. And that's what's huge. I mean, that's another reason why I, I back the organization, the nonprofit that I work with so hard because there is totally this narrative and anti-human trafficking and sexual exploitation of like saving these girls, like saving them. Like, oh, you're such a rescuer. Like literally people have asked me like, oh, how does it feel to go save people? I'm like, who the fuck are you talking to? Like, we don't <laughs> save shit. Like, <laughs> what? Uh, no, but part of it is being able to just like meet people where they're at and then help them um, meet them where they're at and then support them in their journey of like identifying what their goals are and what their health and what their recovery looks like for them. And if there's anything along that, that we can, we can support them in if their journey and their recovery is like having stable housing and having their kid in elementary school, stuff like that, then we can help them get there, but it's not saving anyone. It's just working and meeting with people where they're at and then supporting them in their own journey to recovery. That's awesome. It's such a beautiful organization. Like I can't wait to be able to link that into the site and like have people take a look at it so that they have Mm -hmm. some resources there. Yeah. I just wish you guys, you guys aren't in King County though, are you? No, but we give talks and there's some really cool organizations that we work with in the area too, like REST and API Chaya that are doing some cool things. Um, And I commute from Capitol Hill, so I'm here all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So with that being said, we're coming to a close because I don't know, it's like, I can't believe it's already been an hour. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I can talk to you forever, right? That's awesome. Uh, (laughs) So if there's one call to action that you would want the people that are listening to do to make this a better place for people who are going through trauma, what would that be? That's a wonderful question. I'm going to take 10 seconds to think about it. as much time as you can. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Huh. No, that's a a really, because I mean, there's so much that we went over. I think just like fucking love other people. (laughs) Like just sit with them. Just be with others and be in relationship with others and support them where they're at. Like that's how I was able to get over my trauma. That's because I had people meet me where I was at and just sit with me and love me. And now, and I had such incredible people in my life at every stage that without them, I don't think I could be where I'm at today. And so I think I credit them, uh, the people that stepped into my life that were present, that were just there, that were just present. They didn't have to save. They didn't have to rescue. They didn't have to fix. They were just there. And so now I'm able to be where I am today because of that. That's beautiful. Love and presence. It seems super simple, but it's not. (laughs) It really isn't. Mm -hmm. Um, but love and presence. I like that. Mm-hmm. So if people want to find you, are you open to having them find you on social media or? Totally. Yeah, totally. I have a Facebook, I have an Instagram. My dog has an Instagram. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yep. So if you would like to connect with Allison, you can find her dog herself <laughs> on both Instagram and Facebook. Great. <laughs> yep. And then I'll definitely put a link in for the organization so that if anybody is looking for some resources that they can reach out to you there too. Yeah. And they can, they can definitely reach out even if they have questions about the type of work that I do or getting trainings or getting um, connected to any other resources in their own local area. I can help with that as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I've loved this. This is incredible. Oh, you're the freaking best. <laughs> we'll spar sometimes soon. We'll beat each other up. I don't know. I've seen you. I'm like, what is it like a two-time Golden Glove winner? 
Uh, just once. Just, <laughs> but oh, James, just once. James is, James is a two-time. I'm just the one. <laughs> just the one. Okay, yeah, sure. That sounds like fun. <laughs> that great. All right. Hang Thanks, on a second. Girl. Thanks. I don't need to state that Allison is a badass. Her wounds have provided her purpose, and you can see it in the way she speaks about her work and her passion for helping women. If you want to connect with Allison, you can find her on Facebook at Allison, F-O-R-S-Y-T-H, or on Instagram at A-H-F-O-R-S-Y-T-H. Connect with her to find out more about the nonprofit she works for and help end human trafficking one step at a time. There's so much that we've unpacked in this episode, from talking about fight or flight to paralysis and worse yet, appeasing. It's time to teach ourselves and others how to be unapologetically bold in saying no. Gone are the days when being a good girl works. It's time to learn how to be comfortable in our own bodies and being equipped to say no and mean the fuck out of it. Having real conversations with our kids and not beating around the bush would be a good start. We've got to teach our kids to identify inappropriate behavior from big things to little things so we can prevent unnecessary damage. It's one thing for our kids to never get hurt or traumatized living in a land full of unicorns and rainbows, but it would be even better if we were able to teach ourselves and them how to communicate and clearly articulate what we want and what we don't want from another human. I hope that you found this episode helpful understanding it's better to be unapologetic about saying no than to work your way through trauma to healing to finally not giving a fuck. When you set clear boundaries and reinforce those boundaries, your chances of dealing with shitty problems gets minimized exponentially. I'm working towards a world where we don't have to have movements about speaking up. I'm hoping this information will help you help me get there. If you found this episode to be helpful, please help this new girl out. Subscribe to Trauma to Triumph in iTunes and leave me a review. If you want to connect even further, come to my site, which is kimbao.co, K-I-M-B-A-O dot and drop me a question or let me know what resonated. There's always room to improve and would love to hear the feedback you have for me and be able to connect. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you your insight, your willingness to hear another perspective to add to your arsenal of amazing tools you already have. Enjoy right now, and we'll see you at the next episode. Much love.